2: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll celebrate Social Security's 88th birthday, which uh, took place on Monday, August 14th. And we'll look at its past and its future. Our guest is Dr. Charles Blauhaus, a former public trustee of Social Security and now a senior research strategist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And then we'll discuss a new Concord Coalition issue brief on the history and future of the Social Security Trust Fund. That's written by our own chief economist and former senior policy advisor at the Social Security Administration, Steve Robinson. And Steve will be here to tell us what he uh, found when rooting around the past of uh, Social Security's trust fund. And Tory Gorman is also here to join the conversation. Well, our guest, Chuck Blahouse, is uh, truly one of the nation's top experts on Social Security. Uh, He did serve as a public trustee for both Social Security and Medicare. He also served as deputy director of President Bush's National Economic Council. And uh, he served as executive director of President Bush's Bipartisan Commission to Strengthen Social Security. So, uh, Dr. Blahouse has a, a wealth of, uh, of experience with Social Security, and we're happy to have him here this week to help us celebrate the program's 88th birthday. Chuck, Tori and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Chuck, I, I wanted to ask you maybe to give a little perspective on, um, you know, 88 years. What do we think of as the accomplishments of Social Security? What does it uh, what does it mean to our society?
1: Well, that's a great place to start, because I find that in these discussions, we have a tendency to start in the middle. Right? We start <laughs> arguing about the impending insolvency and what are we going to do about it and how big of a problem is it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's important, I think, to start that discussion by talking about why it matters and what social security has accomplished and the role that it it plays in people's lives, because otherwise you really can't understand what's at stake in this whole solvency debate. Um, I think there are two points I would make first and foremost about that. One is that social security is uniquely successful I think as a uh, political achievement in the sense that it provides very substantial and nearly universal income support to tens of millions of Americans, and it manages to do it in a way that doesn't uh, incite popular revolt over the financing, right? I mean, anyone who works in public policy knows how tough that is to do. Anytime you put together any sort of benefit program, whether it's retirement income or health benefits or unemployment benefits, there's gonna be someone who squawks and objects uh, as to how it's gonna be financed, who's gonna pay for it and all of that. Uh, And we've seen many uh, an initiative either crash and burn or be enacted with great controversy so that people are still arguing about it years and years later. Um, Social security remarkably, I think, escapes that. I mean, you consider how much income it provides and how many people it provides it to. I mean, you consider the really substantial financial burdens that are involved with with, uh, funding it. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive that Americans uh, generally accept it as reasonably fair. Uh, it's not that anyone enjoys paying their FICA taxes. Of course, they don't. But it doesn't seem to stick in their craw the way that uh, many other programs uh, are, are controversial. And that's pretty impressive. And the other point that I would make is, I think, even more relevant to the solvency discussion, which is that Social Security provides benefits that are uniquely reliable and secure and predictable, almost every other program the federal government runs, there's a constant renegotiation of the terms, right? It's, uh, you know, what are the benefit levels going to be? Who's eligible? Should there be a means test? Should there be a work requirement, right? And if you're a beneficiary of those programs, you never really know from one year to the next what your benefits are going to be and if you're going to get benefits at all. And why has Social Security generally escaped that? Well, it's, it's escaped that for a very specific reason. And it's because, well, in, in a more typical income support program, you got one set of people who are paying for the benefits because you're funding it out of the general revenues of the treasury. Uh, and so they're paying for it with their income taxes and not everybody's paying those income taxes. And you have another set of people who are getting the benefits uh, without necessarily having paid anything to uh, fund the programs, so you have this constant collision of interests and, and this constant renegotiation of the terms. Uh, but Social Security is different. We're all paying into it for the most part. We're all, you know, the, the beneficiaries and the funders are the same people. And not only that, but there is a direct connection between the benefits you're eligible for and the contributions that you made. And it's a little indirect. It's basically your taxable earnings, but still i mean it's it's indirectly a function of what you contributed that determines what you're eligible for in benefits and that creates a dynamic where beneficiaries can say we earned these benefits we paid for these benefits and politicians are inhibited from reducing benefits below the levels that workers can justifiably say that at least in the aggregate they paid for and that is the reason that social security beneficiaries aren't worried from year to year whether their benefits are going to suddenly be cut. Now, the problem is there's a price for that type of privilege, right? It's it, it only works as long as lawmakers are willing to keep in alignment the benefit promises of the program and the amounts that worker contributions can actually finance. If they're not willing to do that, we can't have this type of system because uh, then we have no relationship between what workers put into the program and what their benefits were. And we you know, revert to the dynamics of a more typical income support program, and benefits would be less secure, and they'd constantly be being renegotiated because we'd be funding them in some other way. So there's a lot at stake here. I mean, what's what's really at stake in this whole solvency discussion is whether we can continue to have the sort of secure, reliable, predictable Social Security system in the future that we've had in the past.
3: Chuck, you you've sort of uh, hinted at you know there are there are problems with Social Security. Maybe not today, but there are problems pending. Um, and I was wondering if you could just give our listeners sort of a, a general uh, concept concept of how big those problems are. What are what are beneficiaries today and in the future facing with Social Security?
1: Well, my short answer is the problems are big, <laughs> <laughs> real, real big. <laughs> um, I think most people who follow public policy have at least a passing awareness that there is an issue here that there's a financing shortfall in Social Security. Uh, and lawmakers are going to have to deal with it. Uh, I think most press reporters get that. Most lawmakers get that. I think Most voters get that. Uh, I think they miss how big and how urgent it is for the most part. I think it's much worse, much more urgent than people tend to recognize. And when you see it reported on, often there's a tone of, here's the latest trustees report, the programs solve it until the early 2030s, Gosh, that's a concern, but just keep it in the back of your mind. Uh, At some point, uh, it's going to have to be dealt with and politicians will make a little nip and a tuck and everything will be fine. Um, That's not where we're headed. (laughs) We're we're headed to, I think, a more fundamental implosion of how the program has always operated uh, for the simple reason that the things that have worked in the past to keep the program solvent are not going to work the next time around. Um, You know, back in 1983, when they last did a a big um, uh, rescue and they rescued the program from insolvency and they made some changes to taxes and eligibility ages and benefits and the like, and kept it going, everything was very different. Uh, The annual income was here and the annual outflow was here. They were pretty close together and lawmakers just needed to come together and close that gap. Uh, But what happened after that, uh, you had the baby boomers in the workforce for the next couple of decades. So you had these big surpluses being built up and then the baby boomers hit the retirement rolls and the program went into deficit starting in 2010. And those deficits have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the program is drawing down that trust fund that was built up when the baby boomers were um, in the workforce. To the point where when that trust fund finally is on the verge of running out, the annual shortfalls are gonna be so large, there is no plausible, reasonable likelihood that lawmakers could actually take action to fill that gap on a moment's notice. Uh, one little factoid that I throw out there to accentuate that point is that you know, historically, lawmakers haven't been willing to cut benefits for people already receiving them. We, we don't go to the 95-year-old widow who's been collecting for 30 years and say, now we're going to cut your benefit. They don't do that. They've never done that. They're never going to do that, uh, which means any changes are going to have to be prospective. Uh, They'll affect future taxpayers and future Uh, beneficiaries. And if you wait till the 2030s, even if you completely cut off all new benefit claims, just eliminated them completely, the program would still go insolvent. Obviously, we're not going to do that either. But even that wouldn't be enough to keep the program solid. So by then, the game's over, right? The the game's long over. We we can't maintain this type of social security system. Uh, I'm not sure if we've passed the point of no return yet. If we haven't, we're getting very close. Uh, But it's not something that's just a nip and a tuck it's not something that can wait to the 2030s to be dealt with. Uh, we're basically making a decision now whether we're going to have a social security system in the future that resembles the one we've had to date.
2: And, and just to before I bring Steve into the conversation, as a, a reminder to uh, to listeners, the program, I think, is uh, there are two trust funds, uh, the retirement and, and, and disability, but they're often referred to in combination and so just doing that for convenience sake, it's it's what a 2033 or 2034 now or. Right. 2034
1: for the combined funds. For the combined.
2: Yeah. And uh, and strictly speaking, if you uh, just as a hypothetical and I don't think this would happen, but uh, if if you got to that point, nothing happened. Everybody seems to think that the law would require an across the board benefit cut of somewhere around. Right. 23 percent, 23 percent or something like that. So that's that's really the the do nothing scenario. Nobody wants it. But the closer we get to it, the more likely it becomes or the more dramatic the changes that uh, need to be made. And it used to be when we started doing this, when I started doing this and, uh, you know, we were all on the hill a long time ago that seemed like a long time off that you know, the 2030s, it was like, Oh my God, you know, that's right. Um, and, uh, that, that date has not fluctuated much. I mean, you can go back and look at stuff and they were saying years and decades ago that, that the program would become insolvent in about 2030. Uh, and, and so while a lot has changed over the past 30 years or so that really hasn't, uh, and we've just drifted closer and closer to it. Steve, uh, what joy do you have to bring to the conversation? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to focus a little bit more about the, the, this notion of timing. Um, I mean, if you go, actually go back to, you know, the late 70s, when, when we made the last big reforms and then 83, as you mentioned, you know, if you, if you look at the, the the trust fund projections, we've always sort of had this window where, you know, we knew the baby boomers were going to retire. So sometime around 2010, 2015, we were expecting, you know, what they call cash flow deficits, where payroll taxes would not be enough to pay, uh, you know, annual benefits. And we would have to start relying on the trust fund in terms of interest or redeeming the trust fund securities. But that that exhaustion date, the date in which the trust fund would would be depleted, it's, it's sort of ranged from, you know, as far out as 2060. And then over the years, it's crept closer and closer. And, you know, now we're looking at, at roughly in the range of 2030 to 2035. Um, you know, that's still, it's now 2023. It still seems like that's a long way off. You know, I mean, from from a politician's perspective, two years is a long time. Uh, and, you know, when you're still talking, you know, 10 years or, or maybe just over, um, you know, but what's, you know, the, this notion that we can wait, that because the trust fund is still solvent, uh, because it's viewed as this, you know, you know, that's the date, you know, the trustees report comes out and everybody focuses on on the, the exhaustion date or the solvency date. Um, you know, what's, what's the problem or what's the danger risk of simply waiting and saying, well, look, you know, we've got, we're good until 2030, 2035. We don't need to get in a hurry. We don't, you know, we don't have to do anything today. We've still got plenty of time. And obviously 10, 20, 30 years ago, we had, we did have plenty of time, but there was no you know, it still was so far away, it didn't seem like there was any big rush, whereas now it, the rush is not, we're not, we don't quite feel a rush, but maybe we should. Um, what, what's, what's your thought?
1: Well, you know, yes, we should feel a rush. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're just reminding me of all my failures uh, over the decades as I've <laughs> attempted to communicate why we need to deal with this faster. I, I mean, I think, you know, in the 1990s, you're right. I think there was, um, well, there were projections back then that were reasonably similar to what they are now, Uh, but there was a a cottage industry of denialists at the time who basically said, oh, well, you know, these projections are overly conservative and uh, maybe this won't work out the way as badly as the trustees currently project. And I mean, you know, Paul Krugman, to my great frustration, was writing that. He was, well, there's still a reasonable chance this problem just might go away by itself. Well, I mean, that was never true. Uh, there were a lot of things that were written at the time by people who who didn't want there to be action, at least action until they control all the branches of government and they could dictate what the solution was. And so there was always a very, very high degree of certainty. I mean, Social Security is not like Medicare. Medicare, you have this big... Uh, you know, very difficult to predict factor of healthcare cost inflation where social security, the, the numbers were all pretty easy to understand and put together. And the projection uncertainty was just a lot smaller. So um, we, we lost a lot of time with, with people um, pretending that the problem might not materialize, even though I think uh, others of us knew that it would. And then my, my more recent failure uh, in this regard was as the trustee, where I would give Uh, briefings to reporters saying, look, here's what's important in the report. And it's not the question date. Stop putting that as the headline. And, you know, one out of every 10 times i would reach a reporter and they would very, you know, um, discerningly and carefully write, uh, you know, a more thoughtful piece. But the other 99 out of 10 wouldn't. And so the press was still getting, you know, here, you know, you've got till the 2030s to deal with that. Uh, And and we just don't. There's just... um, you know, if you look at um, uh, 1983, if you look at the the size of the changes they had to make at that time, they really just had to get over a little hump, right? Because of the the uh, there was a deficit in the short term, but the baby boomers were about to hit the working rolls, so they were going to be rescued from it if they could just get the program over that hump. So it was it was painful, but it was doable. But if you look at the 2030s, it's such a much bigger problem; it's not really doable. Um, not, without, not without imposing changes of a kind. It's, it's inconceivable the lawmakers would ever impose them. We're not, again, we're not going to cut benefits by a quarter for people, for everyone, rich and poor, who's been collecting all their lives. That's just not going to happen. Um, and there's been a uh, political deterioration as well. I mean, we've had the obvious one, right? The, the increased partisanship and polarization. But I'm not even talking about that. I think in the, in the late 70s, to early 80s, There was a bipartisan consensus that Social Security's historic financing structure, historical financing structure mattered, right? That the the sort of the FDR design of the program was sacrosanct. Uh, It was important that the program could stand on its own, that it could be self-financing, that it was funded by a separate payroll tax, that it wasn't funded from the Treasury's general fund. All that stuff was really important. And it was baked into the governing assumptions of people on the left and the right. And that was important because, you know, only if you agree that that's true, are you willing to do things that politicians don't want to do, like raise eligibility ages and raise taxes and slow the growth of benefits. The only reason they were willing to do that is that they saw huge value in preserving the program as it had been handed down. I'm not sure we see that now. I mean, if, if you read the typical blogger of the young progressive left blogger, right? I mean, they're more likely to be, eh, you know, who cares about solvency? We don't care whether the Defense Department is solvent. We just throw money at it. It doesn't matter. And, I, and there is this sort of a fundamental lack of agreement or even disrespect for the, the sort of the historical financing design of Social Security. Uh, And for a lot of the body politic now, there's a tendency to shrug and say, you know, who cares? So we'll just throw general revenues at it, prop it up that way, no harm, no foul. I think they're extremely wrong about that. Uh, And I think that 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 would be, um, uh, we would lose something very valuable in the eyes of the left, as well as the eyes of the right, if we did that. Um, But um, if we don't have a sort of a, a bipartisan consensus that the solvency of social security matters, it's really tough to fix it, even apart from the substantive hurdles.
2: Yeah, really. How do you fix something if you don't have a consensus that it needs to be fixed? Right. We're going to have to take our first break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Dr. Charles Blahaus, a former public trustee of Social Security. We're celebrating the program's 88th birthday and looking at the challenges ahead. We'll be right back after these short messages. <laughs> welcome back to facing the future i'm your host bob bixby steve robinson tori gorman and i are discussing the challenges facing social security on its 88th birthday our uh, guest is dr charles Blahaus, a former public trustee of social security steve uh, in this segment i want to turn to the challenges of social security reform Uh, Some of them are substantive, uh, as we've been discussing in the first uh, segment. Some of them are because of perceptions about the program that make it politically difficult to to enact reforms. Um, And you've authored a new Concord Coalition issue brief titled History and Future of the Social Security Trust Fund Part One. And yes, there will be a part two and a part three to come. But the part one is uh, just released this week. Uh, And uh, in the conclusion of the issue brief, uh, you write that the trust fund controversy arose because the method chosen to build public support for Social Security had the unintended consequence of undermining public confidence in the program. That's an intriguing thought. Um, And uh, I I wonder if you can unpack it uh, uh, in any way you would like to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So one of the things that that I discovered in reading about the history of Social Security is President Franklin Roosevelt was very committed to the idea of having a self-financing funded Social Security system. Um, He supported the idea of what would be referred to as contributory old age pensions. Uh, It's a fancy way of saying that when you retire, you get a defined benefit, you get a fixed monthly payment. Uh, as opposed to you know just a savings account which you'd draw down at, at some you know you know percentage or, or or dollar amount um but yeah so when he created the program he actually established what was called the committee on economic security and he sort of tasked them with a the job of coming up with a plan to pay benefits now remember this is 1935 it's in the midst of the of the great depression um and so there was no real desire because the the way this was to be funded was that they would impose a tax on workers and their employers. And this tax would be referred to as your payroll contributions. And the contributions would be set aside. And then they would use those contributions to pay a monthly benefit. Um, Now, to have a funded system, you'd have to have a contribution of a certain level. And you'd have to have people pay in for a certain length of time in order to build up a benefit. And so they were dealing with really two, two dilemmas. One is they didn't want to impose a high payroll tax immediately. And the other dilemma was that they wanted to pay fairly substantial benefits because, you know, this was the depression. People were hurting and they wanted to have the elderly, you know, trying to, to absolve resolve the issue of, of the depression. And so they, the the committee really struggled with this notion of how do we have a funded system recognizing that we don't want to impose the full you know, contribution rate immediately. We don't want to delay paying substantial benefits as long as it would take to to build up a benefit. And so they said, well, you know, look, what we're going to do is we're going to phase in the payroll tax. They started at a 1% rate. They were going to phase it up to 5%. Um, And the idea was that ultimately 5% would be enough to, to pay for the benefit they were promising, but they didn't want to wait and pay, you know, a meager $5. They wanted to pay a fairly substantial amount. And so they said, well, look, we're going to set this up and we're going to use as the payroll taxes phased in, we're going to use these taxes to pay benefits to the initial, you know, the older workers who are going to retire in the next few years, they're going to get a pretty substantial benefit. They're only going to be paying one or 2%, but then they're going to get a benefit. Well, how are we going to make this all work out, you know, from from an actuarial financial perspective? And so what they said is, look, you know, we're going to phase this in, we're going to phase the benefits up and at some point down the road, around 1960, 1965, so it was you know 30 years after the creation, there wouldn't be enough money to pay the benefits they promised. And they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to have a uh, a federal contribution, and so the federal government is going to step in and pay out of general revenue. Essentially, we're going to pay the shortfall because they recognized they didn't collect enough taxes up front. They paid higher benefits than than were really affordable, or were, were financed with the payroll tax. And so they said, "Well, you know, we've created this debt. We've paid these benefits that weren't funded by the benef- by the beneficiaries who paid in, and the government's just going to make up the difference." Roosevelt saw this plan and said, "Oh no, no, no! This is never going to work. We can't we can't have the government just putting in general revenue. How how do we know the government will even do that? Maybe, maybe they'll decide later that they don't want to pay for these benefits." And so they went back to the drawing board and during the hearings, the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary Morgenthau came in and said, well, I have an idea. Instead of phasing in the rate at 1% and going to five, we're going to phase it in at two and go to six and we're going to phase it in a little quicker and we're going to build up this big trust fund. And the the trust fund is going to earn enough interest so that when we get to 1960 and the payroll tax, the 6% is not, well, actually, by that point, the higher rate would get them a little further. So by 65 or so, we're going to have a big trust fund and it's going to earn interest. And the interest is going to cover that shortfall. And so the idea was that by having workers pay in a little more, a little sooner They would build up this big reserve and it would earn enough interest to cover the the difference in in the benefits that weren't funded for the, you know, the earliest workers. And they said, great, this is what we're going to do. Now, what happened, of course, is that people looked at this and said, no, wait a minute. This trust fund is going to be it's going to be 50 billion dollars. Now, in today's terms, that doesn't sound like much. But go back to 1935. The entire national debt in 1935 was only 29 billion dollars. So they were going to create this fund of $50 billion. And of course, Secretary Morgenthau said, well, what we'll do with the fund is we'll pay down the debt. And people went, wait a minute, you're going to have a fund that's bigger than the debt. Now, how's that going to work? And so there was all sorts of criticism about the fund saying, well, you're meaning we're going to increase the debt. And what are we going to do with these payroll taxes between now and 1965? You're going to borrow those and spend them on other things. And so what happened was that in President Roosevelt's desire to create the um, illusion of a fully funded annuity program, he set up this, this financing mechanism through the trust fund that created the controversy that exists to this day. And if you go back and read articles from the 1930s and the 1940s, there was this huge debate about this the big trust fund and what was gonna happen with the trust fund and Congress was gonna be, you know, it was it was a legalized embezzlement and misappropriation of funds that, that Congress was raiding the trust fund. I mean, you know, all of these are the terms we've heard since the 1983 reforms. But when, when you go back into history, that debate about uh, what happens to the trust fund and what does Congress do with the money in the meantime between building up the fund and paying the benefits You know, it's like, you know, it's like deja vu all over again. I mean, the the history of the system uh, looks like the future of the system, because we're still having those same debates today, debates today about, you know, how do you fund these benefits and where does the money go and what does Congress do with it? And will it be there when you need it to pay the benefits for the baby boomers in the future? And so, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same.
2: Well, I was wondering, uh, Chuck, just to get your perspective, when you were a public trustee of Social Security, uh, the the issue comes up all the time. Uh, we certainly hear it about the Social Security wouldn't have a problem if the politicians hadn't stolen the money and the trust funds have been raised. So, I mean, when you were a public trustee, did you how did you deal with that? Did you get that question on the Hill and and talk to people about it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And there are you know, there are. Politicians and wannabe politicians running around saying that today, right? And and just you know, for the benefits of this audience, that I know everyone here knows it, you know that's that's not correct, right? The the shortfall in Social Security exists despite the assumption that every penny plus interest of that trust fund is going to be paid back, right? That the the uh, system has actually been running cash deficits since 2010. Uh, the federal government has been making payments from general revenues of interest and now principal. Uh, to redeem that debt and uh, to redeem the trust fund. And so when we say that the system is going to be belly up in the early 2030s, that's not because the trust fund was stolen, that's after everything credited to the trust fund was paid back with interest. So it's, it's very wrong. Um, now, in fairness to the people who say this and believe it, there, there is sort of a, a kernel of tangential truth there in the sense that I think most academic analyses have found that the presence of Social Security surpluses tends from a political economy perspective to induce additional spending and consumption by the federal government, right? And so in that sense, you could say, well, economically, uh, those trust fund surpluses are being spent uh, in a sense, right? Because they're not really being saved. Uh, They never, never were. Uh, and there is, you know, there was an ample body of ec- academic literature that came out in the 1990s and 2000s, basically, I think, supporting that view of the economics. And so I, I think it is fair to say that, you know, we're in the situation starting in 2010 that where things uh, were as difficult for us economically as if we didn't have a trust fund because we still faced the full cost of paying benefits because we hadn't really saved anything. But it wasn't a matter of embezzling or stealing the trust funds. It wasn't a matter of social security just needing to be paid back what was being stolen. It's not any of those things. Uh, The basic problem is that we're promising a lot more benefits than worker contributions could reasonably finance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the the analogy is like a bank account. So you you go to your bank, you set up a bank account, you make a deposit. The bank credits your account so it has your name on it, your account number, You put in a deposit, there's $100 there, and that stays in your account unless you write a check and make a withdrawal. But what does the bank do with your money? It takes your $100 and it pools it with all the other deposits, and it makes loans. And so the way to think about it is the government is the bank. Your account is Social Security. Payroll taxes go in as deposits. They can only be withdrawn to pay Social Security benefits, so you know the accounting is always very straightforward the account the trust fund deposits payroll taxes but what happens is just like the bank makes a loan uh hopefully the loan will be good and it'll get the money back so that the deposit is available for you when you want to make a withdrawal um but you know the the analogy begins to break down when you say, well, what is unlike a bank that hopefully is going to make good, solid loans to you know reliable businesses and homeowners who you know more finance their mortgages. The government is just spending the money on whatever, so its ability to pay back the money to the trust fund is always a little more you know questionable, perhaps than hopefully you know a solvent, well-run bank. Uh, but but the account analogy is, I think, the way to think about it. It's not. You know, the the government is withdrawing the trust fund balance. The balance is always staying there unless it's needed to pay benefits. But the money, the underlying money that's being loaned out, is like the deposits that are pooled with all the other depositors.
2: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman and I are discussing the challenges facing Social Security on its 88th birthday. Our guest is Dr. Charles Blahouse, a former public trustee of Social Security. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I are discussing the challenges facing Social Security on its 88th birthday. Our guest is Dr. Charles Blahaus, a former public trustee of Social Security. And in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about solutions. Uh, Tori, you want to lead us off?
3: Sure. So earlier this year, uh, President Biden gave a State of the Union speech before Congress. And one of the remarkable uh, elements of his speech is when he got basically the entire Congress, Republicans and Democrats, especially on the House side, to, quote, stand up for seniors um, and agree that, you know, Social Security and Medicare were off the table. And uh, as someone who's been involved in this debate for a really long time, my jaw essentially dropped on the floor. And I'm wondering, you know, Chuck, you and and Steve are, are, you know, you've been involved in Social Security reform way longer than, than I have. Um, I'm wondering, and, and you've been involved not only on the policy side, but the politics side of things. And I'm wondering, Chuck, we'll start with you. What what your opinion was is on whether or not that was a pivotal moment for uh, future lawmakers as we consider you know, potential solutions for, for Social Security reform. Is, is, is that going to are we going to revisit this moment as a time when the debate fundamentally shifted or is this just going to be, you know, an element in the past that is soon forgotten?
1: Well, I, I certainly think it was a damaging moment. In fairness to President Biden, I think 95% of the damage had already been done in the sense that it was already very difficult for members of Congress to deal with Social Security. Uh, the problem has already grown very large. There are huge political disincentives to wrestling with it because of the things that have to be done with taxes and or eligibility ages and or benefit promises. So it was already tough. I think by doing that, President Biden pushed it from a long shot into impossible, uh, and he did it at a very inopportune time with respect to the future of the program. We we simply can't afford to be inactive on Social Security uh, for the next few years, as basically the president's statement uh, would, would you know, require that we be. Um, my view of the political dynamics of social security is that nothing can ever happen without active presidential leadership. Uh, president has to invest a lot of political capital, be willing to spend political capital on reform. And I would say, I also believe the party involvement in this issue is asymmetric. Democrats have generally used social security more as a, as a wedge issue against Republicans and accusing them of being you know, anti-entitlement and anti-senior and you know, wanting seniors eat dog food and like and republicans are scared to death of that uh, which means that not only um, is this not going to happen without presidential leadership it is certainly not going to ever happen without a democrat a democratic president's leadership um, that is the the pivotal thing that makes the waters safe for uh, republicans to venture into and we saw those dynamics on display uh, where basically all president biden had to say is hey, I'm not touching Social Security, who's with me? And every Republican immediately jumped up, you know, I'm not going to do it either. And that shows you the level of political fear that Republicans have on the issue. So, um, you know, it's an issue that politicians would prefer to stay away from. But if if a president won't lead on it, and if a Democratic president says, I'm going to play politics with it, there's no chance.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, standing up for seniors means today's seniors should feel just as secure as they always have. The problem is, is tomorrow's seniors, <laughs> the younger workers who are turning going to become seniors, you know, you certainly he wasn't standing up for them. But, you know, I, I think it was a a setback, but it's not a permanent major setback. I mean, obviously, Congress is going to have to deal with this. And, you know, I think Biden simply made it clear that we weren't going to be dealing with it in his first term. And and so it's, you know, the the issue is clearly off the table, you know. For, for the remainder of his term and were he to get a second term, you know, it's always, people always say, well, you know, a social security reform is a second term initiative because, you know, you're going to have to make painful choices and people aren't going to like it. And if you have to run for your election, you're probably damaging your chances for reelection. So, you know, to, to, to tie in with what Chuck said, were Biden to win a second term, maybe by the end of his second term, he might change his mind. I don't know. We'll be a little closer to the insolvency date. He'll be, not thinking about getting reelected. He'll be thinking about having a legacy. So who knows?
2: I want to just talk about a couple of the likely options that are out there. I mean, almost going back as far as I can remember, looking at Social Security reform options, maybe the, the two things that get the most discussion are uh, raising the el- eligibility age and raising the payroll tax cap. Uh, one would uh, reduce the the cost burden over time, and the other would would uh, bring in more revenue. And so, I wanted to. I, I we talked a little bit about the fail-safe solution, which is you know just flood the system with general revenues. Uh, and the the Chuck, you talked a little bit about the problems with that. But so, let's go back to some pr- pr- proposed solutions that are internal to the system. Uh, I mentioned those two, Chuck. Uh, what do you think about uh, those two, and what are, what are the pros and cons?
1: Well, just again, I'm, now I'm giving my personal views rather yes. than objective pronouncements. But um, my personal view is, eligibility age changes are among the single best things we could do for uh, the program. Um, occasionally, you will hear. Um, you know, an eligibility age change equated to being nothing more than just another way of doing a benefit cut. I, I disagree with that. I, think, I tend to think of uh, social security policy and retirement policy in general as really having three main factors. One is uh, the level of contributions you have to make when you're working. One is the annual income security you can get in retirement. And the third is the number of years over which those payments have to be stretched. And that third factor is really important. Because if that third factor, if you have to stretch those payments out for more and more years as we live longer, you inevitably get a less and less favorable relationship between worker contributions and annual income security. Either workers are hit with really onerous tax burdens or the amount of annual income security you have in retirement isn't sufficient. The only way around one or the other is to uh, take a look at the number of years over which you're stretching those payments. And um, the, the academic research, I think, is very clear that even just a change of you know, a year or two or even sometimes a few months uh, can do as much for your income security over the course of your retirement uh, as saving an additional percentage of two or two of your, your earnings your entire working career. So it's enormously powerful. Uh, It's enormously beneficial for for people's income security and retirement. And I also think a lot of the objections that are raised to it are red herrings, to be frank. Um, The most common age of claim today is 62. Incredibly, that's that's three years earlier than the generation that fought the Spanish-American War was able to claim benefits, which is, you know, it's look at any photograph of Americans two generations ago and ask yourself if we are that much frailer today than they were 50 years ago. That's just you know, not the case. Um, yes, of course, there are uh, people in manual labor jobs, people who are physically incapable of working longer and we should take care of them. You know, we have a disability program for that. We We should definitely provide for those folks. But I think it's absurd to say that because those folks exist, therefore people like me who are healthy and productive and have an office job and looking at a long lifetime should be paid to be exit to exit the workforce prematurely. So I think we, we definitely need to look at eligibility ages. I've probably spoken too long about that. Going to the tax max, I think it's very, very likely that an increase in the tax max will be a component of reform. Uh, I think that it's highly unlikely lawmakers would be willing to do it all on the cost savings side. So there's going to be a, a revenue element. Um, I would just issue my caveat that it doesn't accomplish nearly as much as popular mythology would have it. (laughs) You're always reading things online, but all we have to do is tax billionaires more, this or that. That's not true. Even if you completely eliminated uh, the the cap on tax wages and and tax all earnings earned in America without limit, uh, you still wouldn't get rid of even half of the long-term annual deficits. So uh, there's only so much you can do through that mechanism. Um, Also, very important, raising the cap on taxable wages introduces kind of a Hobson's choice. You either turn right around and pay that all out in additional benefits accrued on the additional contributions, which is very inefficient. Uh, You're just bringing in more money now and paying it out later. You gain some, but not much. Or you sever that connection, which is a bad policy also, because once you start saying, are you going to pay into Social Security but not get any benefits for it, uh, then you're you're on a, I wouldn't say you're on a slippery slope, but you basically created a situation where you never know whether any, no one is ever gonna know whether their contributions are gonna be credited towards their benefits. That line is gonna constantly be moved and I wouldn't go down that road. So if you do raise the cap on taxable wages, you almost have to couple it with a reduction in the top number in the benefit formula, the top so-called bend point factor. So even raising the cap on taxable wages doesn't get you out of benefit changes. You have to make benefit changes (laughs) in order to have a good effect of that tax increase. So yes, I think it's gonna be a component of reform, but, you know, a lot of other things have to be done.
2: Corey,
3: Chuck, Steve, you guys are both the, two of the smartest people I know in social security and you've studied it for a really, really, really long time. I'm wondering in in the, the you know, this this campaign uh, or the, this, this this focus that you've had on your on your career uh, of social security and social security reform, any aha moments as you studied the social security program and its history? Is there anything that you just went, oh my gosh?
1: Well, okay, I'll go first, even though I've talked too long. So I'll try to be quick. <laughs> I think my aha moment, I used to think that the delay game that was played by the political left was going to succeed in tipping the balance of a solution to the tax side, right? At the end of the game, they would delay it long enough at the end of the game, we'd have to do it all by raising taxes rather than slowing benefit growth, and they would win. But sometime around 2010, 2011, I realized that wasn't what was going to happen, that they were pushing it too far. And now um, it wasn't going to be a tax increase within the traditional system. It was going to be the destruction of the system with a big general revenue bailout. That that was my aha moment that that I think the, the, I had always thought the basic structure of the system would be maintained. We just do most of it on the tax side. And now I think that is being uh, jeopardized. And that happened to me around 2010,
3: 2011. Mm-hmm.
0: Steve? I mean, I guess my my sort of aha moment is in studying the history of Social Security, I discovered how amazingly Social Security is a well-behaved program, that when you look at the interact inter- intersection between demographics, basically life expectancy and birth rates, and the interaction with the benefit formula, which is what what does uh, the benefit formula, how does your benefit relate to your wages, Um, it's just amazing going back through all the trustees' reports. I mean, there have been annual reports since the 1940s. And when you look at these reports, it's amazing how well-behaved the program is and how unlike, as as Chuck said, Medicare, where you have this big unknown of medical health inflation, with Social Security, you really can, with reasonable uh, accuracy, predict the future. What's the program going to look like under under reasonable assumptions for demographics and economic growth.
2: Well, uh, Steve, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Charles Blahouse a former public trustee of Social Security and one of the nation's top experts on that subject. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.